This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r 102.7 fm Good evening, one and all, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, our looking forward, looking back, looking around, scratching our heads, weekly kind of all sorts of stuff show. Adam, who is our awesome uh, genius guest this evening? <laughs> um, we, we do have a uh, uh, very intelligent human being, British-born Dr. Rachel Livermore, uh, once worked in finance. She's now, after attending a course over 12 years ago in the astronomy of Tolkien, am I correct? An astrophysicist. And she says she went from uh, counting dollars to counting, or probably pounds in that case, uh, to counting uh, photons, and now is an astrophysicist based at Melbourne University and a science educator with research interests that concern the first half of the universe and the formation of galaxies. Um... She's also uh, interested in the science of science fiction and blogs at snarkyastronomer.tumblr.com and does events at Cinema Nova, which we'll come to later. And tonight we're going to talk about that formation of the universe and what's special about our star and because we like to talk about existential risks, how it can hurt us. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about electro, or, well, coronal mass ejections um, which are sunspots essentially and how they can affect the electrical grid and how we may all die terribly. No, probably not, but we'll come to that. Anyway, welcome very much to Greening the Apocalypse, Dr. Rachel. Oh, well, thanks for having me and thanks for giving away my dirty secret that I used to be in finance. <laughs> it's on your very own blog, but... Oh, um, worse. oh no. <laughs> yeah, um, but you're very open about your geek roots. <laughs> anyway, you can t- um, we can talk about that later, but tell us about um, the formation of this stuff that's all around us, the universe that all coalesced into um, uh, this room and everything that we know and love. <laughs> Wait, how did it get here? What's it made of? So the entire history of the universe, yes, basically. Yes, we've got about three minutes. Okay. <laughs> so in the beginning, um, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. And then there was something. Even that's um, a bit sketchy, right? Because yeah, there's no concept of time. Right. Before so the, the first, like, 10 to the minus 40, so that's 0.401 seconds yeah. are a bit of a mystery. But after that, you know, we actually have a pretty good handle on it. Yeah. Um, so you start off with all of this matter, which at that stage is just random protons and electrons. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely hot. Mm-hmm. And from the initial explosion, everything is expanding out. Like how long would it cook to, to fry an egg? <laughs> uh, well, it's cooling down pretty rapidly, but in okay. the beginning, I mean, I think it would vaporize the egg, yep. but you wouldn't have an egg because there are no atoms at uh-huh. that stage. Um, <sighs> so then <laughs> gradually everything cools down and you get to a point where light can escape mm-hmm. when everything's very, very hot and dense. No light? light can get out. Um, light's just, it 
bounces into a particle everywhere it goes. Okay. So you have to have the particles spread out a little bit for light to be able to get out. And so that's the limit of how far back in the universe we can look. Uh-huh. Um, before that, light just can't get out. And how, sorry, how long was that period? Um, that was about 100,000 years, 300,000 yep. years. Um, and then, but there's still nothing interesting going on. It's a pretty even soup of particles. Mm-hmm. And then as things cool down a bit more, you get atoms, which is exciting, which yeah. at that point are basically just hydrogen, um, yep. one proton, so one, one proton. electron, yep. um, some helium, two mm-hmm. protons. And that's about it. And this then so forms. So, if anyone's in- there, would their voice be squeaky? <laughs> yes, okay, indeed. <laughs> but you need heavier atoms than that to make a person. Yes. <laughs> well, how did that happen? <laughs> um, so then you need stars. Yeah. And the very first stars would have been basically just hydrogen. Uh-huh. And because of the way that things cool down, mm. um, the, those first stars that are just hydrogen would have been really, really massive, yeah. way more massive than our sun. And big stars, they live fast, die young. Yeah. So they'll be very, very Mm short-lived. They'll explode. Um, In the meantime, they would have fused some heavier elements. They would have joined atoms together to make bigger elements. This is at the final explosion or they do that throughout the whole process? They do it throughout their life. And then obviously the explosion itself will create some heavy elements too. Just to clarify, when you say uh, those big stars are short-lived, how short is short-lived? It's still millions. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's a question. We've never actually seen one of these stars before. Right. So, I mean, as recently as 10 years ago, people were saying that these things could be 10,000 times the mass of the sun mm. and they would be extremely short-lived now i think it's been revised down a bit so we're probably talking of order millions of years yeah mm-hmm. but we've never seen one so mm, yeah. who knows this is all based on computer models wow. yeah um so at this stage after the explosion you've got some heavy elements going out into the universe and those can condense to form more normal stars more like what we see around us today mm-hmm. and those will form heavier elements so the sun is mostly they'll form of them, or they're made mm-hmm. out of them, or they they then make. So they're made out of heavier ones than mm-hmm. the first generation stars. But then you're saying they make even heavier. Yeah, I mean elements. they're still mostly hydrogen and helium. Okay, um, but they'll have some other elements in them which yeah. allow them to cool down a bit more. They end up a bit smaller. Yeah, and then they'll still mostly be fusing hydrogen into helium, but you also get carbon, oxygen, mm-hmm. nitrogen. Yeah. And then some of the heavier ones of those will explode and create heavier elements still. Yeah. And gradually we build up everything we need to make uh-huh. a cloud of gas and dust that's still mostly hydrogen and helium, but has a critical mass of carbon, nitrogen and oxygen to create the Earth and to create us. Uh-huh. So the proto-star that was our sun when it was just a kind of big ball of gas, is it? what you're saying is... The that separated out into planets and that had enough of the heavier stuff. To yeah, make us- so the entire solar system basically yeah. formed from one cloud of gas and dust. Yeah, um, the central region will have condensed down to form the sun. Yeah, and around that you get this disk of leftover gas and dust, uh-huh. and some of that will form into planets. Some of it makes asteroids, comets, yeah. and some of it is still just hanging around. Mm-hmm. Wow, and here we are. That was we the entire are, history of the universe that in how many minutes? Good. <laughs> that was a really good question. <laughs> so some of that still hanging around bit as well. Is that the, what's known, what they call the Oort cloud or that, that big cloud of dust and crap? Yeah, so there's a big cloud of um, gas and dust surrounding the solar system, but also everywhere you go, there, there's no such thing as really a vacuum in space. Mm, mm. There's still, there's atoms everywhere. Yeah. 
And so some of that is still just hanging around. Yeah, um, right. Still mostly hydrogen, but some heavier things too. Wow. <laughs> and, and you look back re- further, you know, further in history in the, in, well, in the universal sense uh, beyond, you know, bef- when the solar system didn't even exist and you actually look at it? Is that true? Yeah. Um, so we take advantage of the fact that light moves at a finite speed. Mm-hmm. So if you look at something far away, you're seeing it as it was in the past. Mm-hmm. So you could look at the sun and you're seeing it as it was eight minutes ago. Yeah. If you look at stars, they're mostly a few years to a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as you get out of the galaxy, you're seeing millions of years back in time. Mm-hmm. And the stuff I do is so far away, the light's taken billions of years to reach us. It's yeah. billions with a B. Huh. Um, and <sighs> the stuff I look at, most of it is the light's been traveling for about 13 billion years. So yeah. it's almost right back at the beginning of time. What, what, what can cool. you see? Yeah. Well, it gets really hard. Um, first of all, because it's really far away and yeah. things that are far away are faint and small. Yeah. But also because we're looking back in time, we're looking at the first stages of formation of galaxies. And so they are themselves much smaller than galaxies would be today. Mm. Why, so, why is that? Well, they're, they're only st- just beginning to form. Okay. Right, so yeah, like, they okay. start off pretty small and we're seeing them really, really far away. Mm. So basically, I've laid, made life as difficult for myself as I possibly can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how, far, how far back have we seen uh, so far, we've seen to about 500 million years after the Big Bang. So that's 13.2 billion years back from where we are today. And that's beyond our galaxy? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, sure. well beyond. So how, how far, how many galaxies beyond? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so oh, that's a tricky so question. If it's, it's 13, is that, so 13.2 billion years at the speed of 300,000 kilometres per mm-hmm. second. Has, has that speed Except of- the universe has been expanding at the same time, right? So it's even further away. Yeah, so this is why we talk in terms of time when we talk about very, very far away galaxies because mm-hmm. distance is complicated. Mm, yeah. Do you mean the distance the light has actually travelled, the distance away the galaxy will be now because yeah. the universe obviously expanded in the meantime? Mm. Um, those aren't the same number. Yeah. So we stick to the time, um, which very, is the distance very, the light has very... actually travelled times 10 to the power of something big right number of varies <laughs> far away yes very yeah. far away oh <laughs> <laughs> um, if anyone's just tuned in now they think oh they took mushrooms tonight <laughs> I, yeah i think you're blowing my theory that we're just living in someone's fish tank <laughs> <laughs> that's possible it's just a really big fish tank <laughs> massive by the sound of it yeah so so let's rein it in then so we'll, we'll bring that in then to our sun uh, now that we're talking about billions and billions of light years away, um, which it was so second generation star. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So in astronomy, we name a lot of things really weirdly, mm. um, and in terms of stars, we go backwards. So I talked about that first generation of stars that would have been uh, mostly hydrogen. We actually call those population three stars. Don't ask. Catchy. Um, and <laughs> then the current generation, like our sun, is population two. And the difference is that they have heavier elements in them. So they're not the first generation of stars to have formed. Mm. And that gives them some different properties. Is that because, so is that because as, so as the universe expands outwards from that, you know, that point of the Big Bang, like more and more things are dispersed and thrown into the mix and, and oh, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I'm really struggling <laughs> to articulate anything. God. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, is that that's it? Is it? Yeah. As yeah, you've got all these heavy in. elements that have been generated right. in the first generation of stars that right. then go into the next generations. <sighs> Bear with me. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> but it's like—is it uh, lots of different stars all mixed together and form new stars? Is that how it um, works? Oh or? yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that's really cool mm. is to get the really heavy elements. So things like gold. Yeah. Even an exploding star can't make that. So what you actually need is two neutron stars. So these are extremely Mm. dense cores, uh, remnants of very massive stars. And are are they themselves first generation stars or um, second? They would be second generation. And they then have to smash into each other. No way. And that collision can create things like gold. So the fact that gold exists in our solar system... We're third generation, um, at, at least... Or part of us. Right. Part well, of us at is. least, yeah. 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 Uh, means, yeah, at least one pair of merging huh. neutron stars has gone into making our solar system, which wow. is pretty cool. So gold, you know, it, you might go to another planet and it's still worth something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm <Sweet>. just <laughs> gobsmacked. So that just completely, for me, if someone had given me gold, um, something gold 20 seconds ago, I'm like, well, that's nice. But my <laughs> gratitude for gold just skyrocketed. So, so, that, I mean, that's, so gold is not... I mean, because I mean, we talk about like the terrestrial, um, I don't know, things that are terrestrial to our planet. But gold is gold come from out in space somewhere. Oh, well, in it, the sense it, that everything that made up our planet came from space. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm catching um, up big time on all of this. Yeah. Uh, you do also get uh, when uh, meteorites land on Earth. Mm. Um, they tend to have lots of heavy elements in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a way that you get heavy elements near the surface of the planet. So a lot of the heavy metals we have will have come from meteorites. Yeah. Uh-huh. And th- the meteorites themselves would have been made from that same cloud of gas and dust as everything else. Mm-hmm. But most of the heavy elements in the Earth, while the Earth was forming and was still liquid, would have sunk to the centre. Because uh-huh. it wasn't a crunchy outer right. core or um, outer, outer edge. And then by the time the Earth solidified, a lot of the heavy stuff is in the middle. This is why we have an iron core in the planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, So a lot of the stuff we find near the surface will have crashed into us later. Is that true for gold? Because that's pretty heavy. I I could not tell you the percentages off the top of my head, maybe. (laughs) That's fascinating, though. Wow. So... um, so our sun, you say it's a second or possi- well, possibly third generation star. How does it compare to, you know, is, is it an average star? Is it extraordinary in any ways? Yeah, the sun's pretty typical. Mm. Um, stars come in all different shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very large ones, as I said, live fast, die young. Mm. Um, the sun is the kind very, of middling. But they don't exist anymore. Um, no, there are still some around because stars okay. are forming constantly. Yep. Our galaxy makes a couple of new stars every year. Yeah. And so the very massive ones, they, um, they'll live for maybe a few million years, a few mm-hmm. tens of millions of years. Stars like our sun are more like 10 billion years. Yep. And then you get stars smaller than our sun, which are way more common. Yeah. Basically, the smaller you go, the more common the stars get. Mm-hmm. And the way they behave varies a lot. Mm. Um, so our sun has all of this activity on it. Um, smaller stars would have even more. And so this is quite interesting when we think about what kinds of stars might host life. Yeah. Um, the activity that's going on in the star is, is part of that. Huh. Okay, do you, want, do you want some but not too much or is it...? <sighs> yeah, you definitely don't want too much. Okay, so obviously which we're going to come to. We are going to come mm, to. Yeah. Sorry, I won't skip ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 
Greening the Apocalypse is the show you're listening to here on Triple R and we are going deep, deep, deep tonight. We're t- discussing the history of the entire universe and our sun and the uniqueness of it and we're going to get towards the end of the show onto electromagnetic pulses and uh, major solar events. Uh, our guest is Dr Rachel Livermore um, who is blowing my mind with uh, history of the universe stuff. She's uh, nothing short of a genius as far as I'm concerned. We were just chatting a bit off air about um, the uniqueness of our sun, or before the break, the uniqueness of our sun and touching on that aspect. And um, uh, we often talk about with planets and things like that, having a Goldilocks zone for a habitable planet. But you were saying uh, off air effectively that you need to have a bit of a Goldilocks sun as well because you were saying that the very, very big ones, they burn out too quick. And in those very small ones, they don't, they don't burn out as quick. They go for a long, long time. But yeah, there's issues with that as well if you're a, a planet orbiting one of those small suns. Let's talk about that quickly. Yeah, so we've decided arbitrarily that in order to host life, it has to be able to host us. So this is what we've defined as life, um, which means you have to have liquid water on the surface of the planet. So obviously there's a very small temperature range in which mm. water is liquid between mm-hmm. zero and 100 degrees. So if you're too close to the sun... It's too hot, too far away, it's too cold. And the Earth is obviously within the Goldilocks zone for the sun. Mm. Um, but if you look at smaller stars, which are way more common, then that Goldilocks zone is going to be a lot closer yeah. because the stars are cooler. And that causes you some problems because, um, as we're going to discuss, mm. um, stars are not very stable yeah. and they throw off all kinds of energy that can interfere with planets. And if you're that much closer to the star as you would be around a smaller one, then that can have even more of an impact. Mm. Right. And, and, so, and, that, and that does lead us on to the next topic because we're talking about our sun, that, that thing that sustains and provides us all with life at, at every level. So what does the surface of that sun look like? You know, and, and is, it, is it weather going on? Can we call it weather? Uh, we do call it weather, but yep. it's, it's not weather as we experience it on Earth, obviously. A lot of people don't appreciate that the, the sun is not a solid thing. Mm. It's, a, it's a ball of plasma, which is a state of matter separate to solid, liquid and gas, um, in which all the matter has its electrons stripped off it. So fire is the plasma that we're most familiar with here. Okay. Um, and it doesn't have a... It has a surface. It has what we call a surface, but it's not a solid surface. And it also has an atmosphere, and we actually live in the atmosphere. It's very thin as you get out towards the Earth, but it's right. not a complete vacuum. Yep. Mm-hmm. And as you go out from the surface of the sun, there's this thing called a corona, which is actually much, much hotter than the surface of the sun for reasons that are way too complicated to get into. <laughs> and the surface of the sun itself, you can see with a pair of small binoculars or a telescope, don't look directly through them. Yep. Um, but you can either apply a suitable filter or project it onto a piece of paper or card. Mm. And you can see see that there's that it's not a solid surface it has these sunspots um, which are regions where it's cooler Um, if you look through a good telescope with the suitable filters you can actually see these prominences sticking out where bits of material are being flung out in these huge arc shapes it's actually a very violent surface yeah it's pretty cool there's a a photo in our show notes doc i don't know if you saw it Mm. bushy but i got it from the space weather services web page and it shows one of those um huge eruptions which i guess if you dropped you know a boulder into a into a um into a pond and water sprayed up you know several meters high five meters high and you compare a you know like a 
a, a basket or may, maybe more like a tennis ball to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's Earth next to this massive eruption. It's absolutely terrifying to look at. It oh, is yeah. terrifying. And it is many times the size of the Earth. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty scary. Yeah, and so, I mean, I always knew the sun was a lot bigger than the Earth, like, astro- you know, hugely bigger, but just the fact that these weather patterns would, they look like it would just uh, wipe us out and just... Uh, a, a bat, you know, bat us away with, it does with sort of flame look, and fury. It looks like it's flinging. It looks like someone's taken the old sock full of coins, like mafia style, and just swung it out. And just really casually, though, it just sort of looks like this little whip. <laughs> you know, although it looks like a whip. What would that be? Like half a million kilometres long, that little whip of flame there? Yeah, I mean, they vary in size, but um, the image there has the earth to scale. It's like a little speck. Mm. So Jesus, it does um, too. I hadn't actually taken that in fully. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. pretty terrifying. Um, mm. So what's going on on the surface of the sun is you've got all this plasma and the sun rotates much like the Earth does. The sun has a day. But whereas the Earth is, the surface at least is solid. So mm. wherever you are on the surface of the Earth, a day lasts 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the sun, because it's not solid, it moves at different rates. Okay. So if you're on the solar equator, it takes about 25 days to do one rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're near the poles, it's more like 36 days. Mm. Ah. And so because you've got this differential rotation, you have these magnetic fields. And as the different bits of the field are moving at different rates, they get twisted. Uh-huh. And if you can imagine like contorting a rubber band until it snaps, yes, um, that's what's happening. And uh. these like, sometimes huge masses of the surface of the sun just get flung out as the rubber band snaps. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's a lot of gravitational force there, so most of it lands back on the sun, presumably. Yeah, um, a lot of it, you'll see these arc shapes mm. um, where a lot of it will come back down. But if there's enough force... Mm. Um, so the same way we can launch a rocket off the Earth, you give it enough velocity, um, it can escape the gravitational field. It's the same on the sun. If it's going mm-hmm. fast enough, it will get flung right away. Mm-hmm. And if we happen to be in the way, then the sun doesn't care. Right. Uh, how fast is fast enough for that to happen then? I mean... I could not tell you off the top of my head. No, but I mean... Uh, yeah. Uh, but some of these things move incredibly fast. So we're talking thousands of kilometres an hour. Mm. So um, is the... Correct me if I'm I wrong. I think even hundreds per second sometimes. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of kilometres per second. Could that be right? Oh, sorry. I meant per second. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so really fast. To, to break that... I was yeah. focusing on saying kilometres instead of miles and I forgot the seconds. Yeah. <laughs> In order to break that gravitational field over the sun, I mean, what, how much greater... Is it to the times of like four or five thousand times more powerful gravitational field on the sun than on the Earth? Is thereabouts? Oh, again, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Oh, um, right. That's fine. Quick arithmetic: it's, but it's, a, it's about a huge... hundred times bigger than the Earth. Right. So, so when they break off and um, get out of the gravity, what form do they take, and how far do they travel? Um, so this is mostly just um, separated protons and electrons because it's a plasma yep. and um, they will just get flung out into space towards us. Um, there's also all this other matter in between so it can create shock waves. And um, when it gets to the Earth, the Earth, of course, has a magnetic field, which is great because it protects us for the mm. most part. Um, but it can it can interfere with the upper atmosphere. Um, this is why we get northern and southern lights. Um, this is material being ejected from the sun, mm. um, interfering mm. with the upper layers of our atmosphere. How consistently cool. do those events, those uh, auroras, um, 
southern and northern auroras happen? Is that sort of daily or seasonally? Or um, It varies. Um, the sun itself goes through an activity cycle, which lasts about 11 years. Yep. Um, so we're currently just coming out of a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, ah. As we get up towards a maximum, it becomes, uh, they become more frequent. Right. Good um, time to get Iceland. <laughs> far more difficult to see the southern lights than the northern lights, of course, because there isn't as much inhabited land close to the South Pole. Right. Gotcha. Um, but these these things that are coming off the sun, uh, what's the difference between a sunspot and I've also read the <laughs> phrase coronal mass ejection? Yeah, so sunspots are regions on the surface of the sun that are cooler than mm-hmm. the surrounding area. So if you look at them um, through a telescope, again, with suitable filters, yeah. you um, see them as dark spots. And these have been observed as you know, as far back as thousands of years ago. People have mm-hmm. seen that the surface of the sun isn't perfect. Um, this is caused by differences in the magnetic fields. Okay, so it's not necessarily one of these explosions? No. Okay. Um, but these explosions tend to come from regions um, where there are sunspots. Uh-huh. So a coronal mass ejection is when the, our metaphorical rubber band snaps yep. and throws material from the surface of the sun out. Mm-hmm. And so that tends to happen where there is a sunspot, but a sunspot doesn't necessarily mean a coronal mass ejection. Yeah. And are they the same as solar flares? Solar flares are slightly different. Um, the material doesn't get completely flung out. It can just, it erupts a bit. Okay. Um, whereas a coronal mass ejection has, well, it's, it does what it says on the tin, as we say in the UK. Um, actual bits of the surface of the sun are being ejected. Wow. And, and are they still plasma by the time they get here, this fourth state of matter that you mentioned? Yes. Okay. Yep. So it's like bits of the sun get just go through space how long does it take for them to get from there to, to Earth? Um, it varies depending on the violence of the eruption. Yep. Um, typically, it's a few days. Yep. But the fastest ones ever recorded are of order 15 hours. Yep. So wow. that's the level of notice we get. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do have a lot of satellites. By we, I mean humanity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so we can actually we see when these ejections happen. And if you look on websites like spaceweather.com and so on, mm. um, they'll give you reports. And this is mostly useful to us as, hey, you might be able to see the um, aurora tonight, mm-hmm. but also useful for planning um, if a particularly bad storm happens. Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, 15 hours, look how long it took us just to get to our little moon <laughs> right. and a rocket ship, and 15 hours it's coming all that way. Oh, it's incredible. And it's not just coming all that way, it's coming all that way with death in its eyes. <laughs> um, well, when we come back, we'll talk about the effects on Earth of these coronal mass ejections. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You are on Green of the Apocalypse on 3RRR, and we are and have been talking with Dr Rachel Livermore about the history of the universe, how the sun came into being, uh, what a rather average star it is, and yet one that very fortunately supports life, although it does have an angry side, and it does uh, occasionally spew out these coronal mass ejections, which are the solar flares. When it, anyway, when it throws out this plasma at Earth, races across the solar system and hits us within 14 hours, and it can have effects. And you mentioned the aurora borealis being one of those, that these beautiful lights in the sky, and that's the sun hitting the earth. And that, that's the nice thing it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, is, does it glow in a similar way that a fluorescent light does, maybe? 
I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, it's um, interacting with particles in the yeah. upper atmosphere and fluorescing. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, back in 1859, I think it was, there was a very large solar or coronal mass ejection and Earth happened to be in the way of it. And at the time, electronic communication was fairly new. We had telegraphs. And over the US, there was visible sparks and uh, shortages and breakdowns of communication. Um, and also the opposite of that, that people could um, send telegrams without hooking it up to their generator because there was enough electricity going through the wires anyway. Mm. Um, how, there's a, there is a dark side or <laughs> to these sunspots. <laughs> um, what, what are the kind of... What, what, how does it work? How does, you know, so... Bits of the sun hit the earth. Why does that cause electricity to, you know, do crazy things here on earth? Well, I should say, first of all, the sun has no intentions, hostile or otherwise. No, It's no, just no. being a sun. Yeah. Um, but You're very yes. generous. <laughs> I th- you sound so naive. <laughs> um, but yes, it can have quite kind of devastating consequences. Um, we have evidence, of course, that it has completely wiped out a planet before. Oh, um, we reckon God. that Mars In was our once... System. Yeah. Uh, Mars was once very much like Earth. It had oceans, it had an atmosphere, and we think it was a um, solar storm that Mm. stripped away the atmosphere, so it's now far too thin to support life. Um, Water no longer exists on the surface. Mm. It's now completely barren, and that was the sun's doing. So it could do the same to us. Probably Uh not. Um, But yeah, in 1859... We are closer than Mars, okay. yes. Um, we have more gravity, so it's easier to hold on to the atmosphere. And we yep. also have magnetic fields, which protect us to some extent. Yeah. Do you feel um, like explaining how they work briefly? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, no, magnetic fields are complicated and boring, yeah. but they do very interesting things. Uh-huh. So the sun has a lot of magnetic fields, yeah. um, which we already talked about, just what causes these coronal mass ejections. Mm. And those magnetic fields remain in all the matter that's sent towards the Earth. And um, they're charged particles. They are charged particles and they generate electric fields. Mm -hmm. So when you generate an electric field, you generate a voltage between two points. Voltage is just a difference Mm. in electric potential between Mm -hmm. two points. So anything that has a long wire, it's going to generate a massive voltage across. Mm. So basically, like it's affecting different parts of the earth to different degrees. Yeah. So, and it's because of that difference, yeah. which we kind of put a conductive wire between those two points, that you've got that differential can discharge, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Am so voltage it? itself doesn't hurt you. Yeah. Um, we're talking thousands to tens of thousands of volts, yeah. uh, which sounds terrifying. But if you've ever had an electric shock, or like a static shock, especially mm. when the weather's really dry, that's thousands of volts. Yeah. And the reason that doesn't kill you is there's not very much current because you mm. don't have anything that's to mm-hmm. carry the current. Current kills. <laughs> it's current that kills, not voltage. <laughs> yeah. And this is why when we transport power over long distances, we have extremely high voltage because that way the current could be low. Mm-hmm. Um, so when so when we have very long wires, as we do, because that's how we transport electricity, mm-hmm. then you can carry the current. And so this enormous voltage can fry um, anything along a long wire. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the 1859 Carrington event. Mm. Uh, they reported in a telegraph station's offices catching fire. Mm. And it's, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, it would essentially melt wires. Uh-huh. 
And obviously this was, um, sorry, that wasn't 1859. No, no, um, Carrington, yes, it was 1859. Yes, yes, you're right. 1859. Yes. So obviously 1859, all, as you said, all this technology was very new. Um, and not much are, of it. And it was, yeah, it was not much of it. Yeah. It's very, very different now. Mm. Now we have electrical power grids covering most of the earth. Yeah. Mm. And so the damage it could do now is far, far greater than it would have done in 1859. Mm. And not just that, but I mean, uh, the electrical grid powers water. The electrical grid um, is required to be up and running for nuclear power stations um, and a multitude of other things. And not to mention the fact that our vehicles are predominantly... Uh, electric vehicles, or not not all electric vehicles, but they have a lot of electrical components in them. Is, is that sort of day-to-day thing at risk as well? Um, not from a, a natural um, event. Mm. So a, a coronal mass ejection would really only affect things that are connected to long wires. Okay. So mm-hmm. anything that's connected to mains electricity would be fried, mm-hmm. um, and it would actually fry the components in anything that's connected, so it wouldn't be recoverable as soon as it goes away. Right. Um, if, if, like... Wouldn't your electricity, you know, um, the the fuses blow? Or oh the, yeah, the, the fuses switches. would blow. But, but yeah, you're saying that melt. potentially before that happens, even you've lost your the circuit circuitry's burnt out because yeah. it happens so quickly. Yeah, in right. order of a few seconds, uh-huh. everything's down. <clears throat> yeah, and as you mentioned, we rely on electricity a mm. depressing amount. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, water purifiers, so we lose our water as well. Yeah. Um, you also, in order to pump water up. That all relies on electricity. Mm. Um, landline phones would go down. That's yep. long wires as well. Both of the both of the landline phones that are left in Australia. <laughs> <Right. laughs> go on. Um, so, th- so is that to say? I mean, if you were holding, say, if you were outside, you had say a laptop or a phone or something like that, which has got a heap of um, you know information that's actually in the phone, not drawn from the internet as such. Because I imagine the internet would suffer greatly in this situation. But would that phone itself not be affected because it's not plugged to those large wires and systems? Yeah, provided you're not charging it at the time. Okay. Interesting. So I had a conversation today because mm. um, I didn't want to put you on the spot and ask you too much about, you know, the Australian electrical grid. <laughs> and I found out that there's a place called the Space Weather Services, which is a department of the Bureau of Meteorology. And there's a guy there, Dr. Richard Marshall, who's also a physicist. And he's, an, he's specialised in this. He, he, he watches the sun and he watches, uh, yeah, the, the, the coronal mass ejections and works with... Everyone from state and national government departments, universities, uh, AMO, which is the Australian Energy Market Operator, which is like an overseeing body of the uh, electricity companies, and with he works with the companies directly. And they're all involved in scenario planning and uh, considering uh, likely scenarios, and they've got their own models for the electricity grid, and they combine that with his physics models for how those CMEs, coronal mass ejections, are likely to affect Australia. And he said things affect it like uh, the type of geology, um, right. how, how, how much water there is in the water table maybe, um, the more conductive it is than, you know, in one area and less in another. I'm not really sure how it works. But somehow his, mo- his models can tell the electricity companies uh, what they're likely to experience. And so he said until maybe 2011 this wasn't being taken very seriously in australia uh but one of the i forget who he said but um one of the agencies i think it was amo put out a paper on it and the very next year 2012 there was one of the largest coronal mass ejections in recent Mm. history which earth was fortunately not in the shotgun blast of we were 
Um, off to the side. Off to the side. Right. But if it had happened a week or so later... That's what then, they say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess it was good timing in a way because it got interest in this issue. And he said since then there's been a lot of... There has been a lot of interest and all these departments taking it seriously. And so I asked him, like, you know, how does he think that... How, how does he... You know, how would we go if such a thing happened? And he was rather confident, I would say, that we wouldn't experience an, a, like an Australia-wide blackout you know, a devastating thing. Right. But there might be local blackouts that might last days to recover from. So is where that Transformers and other based on being in what, a, direct, a direct impact zone would suffer more than, say, two or 3,000 kilometres off to the side? I or don't how, how? think it's that targeted, is it? It's yeah, just a, it's just an artefact of the geology of the region and the particular infrastructure and, you know, arbitrary factors, yeah. more or less. I don't know the details of how the Australian national grid is set up, but it's yeah. um, also very difficult dependent on how centralised it is and whether they've done anything to protect against surges, which some countries have and many have not. Yes. One thing he did say, though, is satellites um, can be affected... Oh, well, sorry, he led me... He just said I should go research it. And I read a little bit about it. Um, And so some satellites are more protected than others, but there's two ways they can be affected. One is that, now you'd know about this, Rachel, and could probably explain it, but sometimes when the CMEs come to Earth, they make the atmosphere expand. Mm. And so low Earth Earth, uh, satellites get a whole lot of friction and they start to lose um, height. Well, there's actually matter in the CME as well. Oh, right. So, so it can literally yeah. push it. Um, so it's actually it's causing friction, so yep. like air resistance. Yeah. And if spacecraft slow down, they fall out of orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's also pretty terrifying. Yeah. Oh. And I think possibly, even though they're not connected to the big grid, so I don't know how this works, but that the that the radiation from them can affect some satellites directly as well. And, of course, satellites are in space, so they're not protected by the Earth's atmosphere uh, and the way we the, are on Earth. And the magnetic field that you mentioned. Right. Yeah. So he, so there's the potential that, um, that you know, we could see disruption to GPS services for at least a short period. And uh, some of the smaller uh, satellites, like there's these new CubeSat things, which are super cheap to go up, they might... Um, and if they're low Earth orbit, they might just, you know, go out of commission altogether. Or mm. Yeah, so there could be uh, serious disruptions to satellite services, I think. Yeah, and we are horrifyingly reliant on GPS. That's how I got here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> no one's got a well, I'm glad way. you made it. <laughs> um, do you want to – do you like playing the odds on things, Adam Grubb? What do you – According to a report published in 2012 by physicist Pete Riley of mm. Predictive Science, Inc., the chance of Earth being hit by a Carrington-class storm between 2012 and 2022 is 12%. Mm. What do you think of those odds? That doesn't sound good at all. That doesn't. No, so I put some. I punched this out a little bit earlier. That's one in 8.3 chance, like, you know, 12 into... Right. Yeah. So if I was going to send you to the beach to go for a swim and I said to you, today's chance, Adam, of being attacked and murdered... <laughs> murdered. Attacked and killed <laughs> by a shark... Is one in well, eight point three. Yeah, but we're not necessarily saying it's quite as bad as that. I mean, no, that but they're said, pretty shit odds. I wouldn't mind it. I reckon a, a good shark bite, like if you survived, it'd be oh, like a boss. Be, you'd be yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd go down pretty well. You're not paying for drinks ever again no. if you got shark scars. Yeah, yeah, ever. And I, so we could survive this one too. Okay, we probably cool. would, according to my the sources. And thank you very much. I should say for the 
generous amount of time. Richard Marshall from the Space Weather Services gave me. Thank you so much, Dr. Rachel Livermore, for making time this evening. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.
Triple R is where you are and where you've been at for the last hour. And uh, Green in the Apocalypse is the program you're listening to. Our guest this evening, Dr. Rachel Livermore, uh, genius supreme. Where can people have a look at your work and your articles and your website and be as perplexed and confused <laughs> as I am? <laughs> That's unfair. No, it's just it's just they're new to me. Very well communicated. Oh, they're brilliant. I just I'm just not I don't understand. And it's been wonderful actually getting an education and understand. Where can people go and be educated? Uh, well, you can find my website rlivermore.com. Um, I'm also on Tumblr, a snarky astronomer, um, because nice. one of the things I really like to do is to snark about the way science is presented in movies. Mm. And so that's a thing I do with the Cinema Nova here in Melbourne. Um, we have a movie coming up this weekend, um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, mm-hmm. one of the greatest movies ever made. Ever. <laughs> Uh, ever made. And how is the science? One of the greatest movie villains of all time. Uh-huh. The science is questionable mm-hmm. and it's a lot of fun because it's one of those ones that doesn't take itself seriously. Yeah. Does Captain Kirk seduce an alien? I always love it when that happens. No. I love not a bit in of interspecies one. love. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Spock, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've got some man love. <laughs> Yep. Um, but yeah, we show the entire movie, so it doesn't matter if you haven't seen it before or if you haven't seen it since 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, watch the whole movie and then enjoy it for a brief period of time before I rip it to shreds and <laughs> um, tear apart all the science. That sounds brilliant. 